Hello, this is Dennis Sanders, and welcome to episode 125 of Church and Maine. Hello and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Happy New Year and welcome to 2023. I have been long been fascinated with how evangelical churches are dealing with the issue of the role of LGBTQ persons in the life of the church. Of course, being that I'm gay, I have some skin in the game, and I also grew up evan- came from an evangelical background. So there is some personal stakes on this. I'm fascinated to see how evangelical churches are handling this issue. And I really don't think that it's a given that evangelicals are going to reject this issue out of hand. Um, and that's because as um, LGBTQ people are becoming more and more a regular part of American society, more and more people of faith are having to figure out how to deal with LGBTQ people in their midst. Uh, the news late last year that contemporary Christian um, musician Amy Grant is hosting the wedding of her niece to a woman is proof positive that evangelicalism is going to come to term have to come to terms with this issue sooner or later. Now, late last year, I did a fascinating interview with Pastor Paul Vanderclay. Uh, Paul is an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church, and we chatted about how his denomination is or isn't um, dealing with the issue, um, and we especially focused on where the affirming side of the discussion might actually be dropping the ball and not really handling this issue as well as they should. Today, we're going to look at another evangelical denomination how and how they're going to handle this issue, hope, how they might handle this issue at their annual meeting later this year. Now, the Evangelical Covenant Church is a denomination that has its roots in the Pietist movement, um, but it also has Lutheran roots. Um, and there are about 200,000 members in the United States and Canada. Uh, while it was formed um, by Swedish immigrants, today it's a very, very diverse denomination. Now, at the 2019 annual meeting in Omaha, the church did something that really it had never done before, and that is they expelled one of the oldest churches in the con- in the denomination, First Covenant Church in Minneapolis. And that was because of its affirming stance on LGBTQ issues. Now, history might repeat itself later this year. Uh, there are two other churches that could be expelled. One is in the Twin Cities. The other is in Seattle. So I wanted to learn more about what's going on in um the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, when it comes to this issue. So I chatted with historian Chris Gertz. Uh, Gertz is a professor of history at Bethel University in St. Paul. Uh, he has written three books on pietism, including 
the Pietist Option, Hope for the Renewal of Christianity, which he co-wrote with Mark Patty. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about the history of the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, the 2019 decision to expel First Covenant of Minneapolis, why the LGBT, LGBTQ issue is so intractable um, in, the, in the Covenant Church, and what might happen in 2023. Um, I spoke actually with Chris um, in 2022. We kind of had a more of a, a primer on what, what is pietism. Um, so I'm glad to have him back to talk a little bit more about, especially where pietism might even fit when it comes to uh, this important issue. So without further ado, let's hear from Chris Gertz. Chris, I am glad to have you um, back on the on the podcast again. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Dennis. So, um, part of the reason um, I have you on uh, again is I um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, he is um, in the uh, pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, Paul Vanderclay, um, and we were talking about LGBTQ issues mm-hmm. um, within that denomination. Um, having come myself from an evangelical background, I'm, I'm fascinated. And of course, being gay, mm-hmm. how are evangelicals wrestling with this issue? Sure. Um, yep. And I think that there's a lot, it's a lot more complex than people give it, um, tend to think. Um, and so I want to really kind of talk to people about all of that. Um, Christian, the Christian Reformed Church is one kind of branch out there of, of evangelicalism, but so is the um, Evangelical Covenant Church. But I think it first makes some sense to, because there are a lot of people that probably don't know, and mo- I think most of my audience tends to be more mainline. Um, and like like me, you we kind of straddle both of those worlds. So mm-hmm. I think it kind of would help to kind of get a brief understanding of um, who is the um, Evangelical Covenant Church. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a growing denomination in recent history, but it's still a pretty small. It's probably 200, 250,000 people in the United States and Canada. So, um, yeah, it, it's, boy, where to start the story of the Covenant Church? And I should say, like, I'll try to do this as, you know, as this passionate scholar, but, you know, I, I'm a fifth generation Covenanter, so it's kind of family history for me as well. So the Covenant Church as a denomination is founded in 1885 in Chicago. And the background to this is primarily Swedish immigration. So mm-hmm. between 1850 and 1930, about one and a quarter million Swedes head to North America. And uh, you know, not surprisingly, given Sweden at the time, most of those people are Lutherans of some sort. And so they get to the United States and they don't find a state church. Instead, they find this uh, wide open religious marketplace that we call American faith. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of Lutheran synods and denominations that start to coalesce. And so the Swedish Lutheran synod is the Augustana Synod, which Mm -hmm. over a series of mergers becomes what's now part of the ELCA. Um, There are also some Baptists who have come. There are some Methodists who have come. And then there are some people who are kind of in the middle. And so... The covenant comes from people who intend to stay in the Lutheran church, 
theologically, they're Lutheran. They affirm the Augsburg Confession. They tend to baptize infants. Um, they tend to have uh, expectations of a pretty well-educated clergy. Uh, they, they believe in sacraments, not just ordinances, all of that. But they think that the Augustana Synod is too concerned with uh, confessionalism and maybe give too much power to clergy. Those are some of their early issues. And so in 1885, a couple of these small synods decide, we're not going to join the Augustana folks. We're going to set up our own very loose mission covenant, they call it. Mm -hmm. And that's even too much for some of their people who then found what's called the Free Church, which is now the Evangelical Free Church. Um, so ah, so like, those two are related. Okay. Yeah. So there's a Swedish, and then I think after World War II, the Swedish Free joined the Danish and Norwegian Free, and that's where the Evangelical Free Church comes from. So, um, I mean, what what it's coming from originally is what we, we had talked about the last time I was on the podcast, which is the history of pietism and specifically a revival that was taking place back in Sweden in the middle of the 19th century. And And so as the covenant develops over time into the 20th century, um, it still is Lutheran in a sense. Uh, I remember in confirmation class when I was 14, I, I learned Luther's small catechism. Uh, that was, that's still part of it. It's, uh, Covenant Church still describes itself as a Reformation church and part of, I guess, the Protestant mainstream, if not the main line. Um, but it also is, is shaped by evangelical revivalism. Um, the, the Covenant has its own Swedish version of D.L. Moody, a guy named E.A. Skogsberg in Minneapolis. Um, some of them become very enamored of Billy Graham in the mid 20th century. Uh, a covenant pastor named Paul Reese is an early president of the National Association of Evangelicals in the 1950s. Um, but at the same time, the covenant church never joins the NAE and it's always been in this weird middle ground. It's, it's never been part of like the NCC, the mainline group. It's never been part of the NAE. Uh, and so kind of depending which covenant congregation you're in, it would probably feel a little bit more weighted to one side or another. Uh, in, in, you know, in the past 20 years, since I've come back to Minnesota, the covenanters that I've known have probably skewed a little bit closer to the main line. We use the new revised standard version, uh, Bible. It, it tends to be a little bit more liturgical in worship. Um, but others, you know, I've, I've, Certainly, been to churches that feel a lot more informed by the mega church movement or the church growth movement, or or we've had church planters who come from evangelical reform background and just like the covenant. And, and so it's hard to pin down using the usual kinds of categories, right? Like I, I think I'd feel okay saying it's broadly evangelical, but I think a lot of covenanters don't feel super comfortable with that term for various reasons. And, and maybe the other development that's worth noting is the Covenant Church starts as this Swedish immigrant enclave, and you know that's my family history. It's all Petersons and Nelsons. But um, starting kind of in the 1960s, 70s, mostly with black churches in Chicago, the Covenant really becomes intentionally multi-ethnic to the point that uh, the seminary president at North Park is an African-American scholar. We've had executive ministers who are black, superintendents who are black, um, and and not yet president of the denomination. That that's that's a bar that hasn't been cleared yet. But um, it presents itself if you go to the Covenant website as a multi ethnic mosaic. And that I mean that's almost as important as any other term that would be applied to it in its its self understanding. Yeah, and of course, one of the for, for, for both being that we're both in Twin Cities, one of the um, more well known churches probably in the denomination is Sanctuary Covenant, which mm -hmm. is a predominantly African-American 
uh, congregation in North Minneapolis. Absolutely. Yes. So we I mean, really came to prominence under Ephraim Smith, who since moved mm-hmm. to California, but now under Edwin Williams. I have a lot of friends at Bethel, a lot of students here at Bethel, which is historically Swedish Baptist, but close to the covenant of, you know, they, they, they want to be in the city. They want to be in North Minneapolis. They want to be under the leadership of people of color. They like the style of worship. They like that's intentionally multicultural. That, that, that's not a totally unusual covenant story, I'd say, at this point in the 21st century. Okay. So kind of moving on a little bit uh, towards more um, kind of modern issues, you know, one of the things that you have t- you, know, you talk about in your article, and um, I'll include this in our in the description for the podcast, is how you kind of deal with various issues. Um, you know, in the past, you've said that um, covenanters have had differing opinions on eschatology or baptism and all of that, and were able to somehow live together then sexuality comes and it's all of a sudden we can't deal with this um and maybe before i kind of get to that point okay um something happened also that kind of i mean this has been an issue but obviously it's been building and that led to something in 2019 um, that again has a twin cities connection right so Maybe the larger background to say is what you alluded to, Dennis, which is I think the covenant for a long time prided itself on its ability to stay together and not be torn apart by issues that historically have torn you know, Protestants generally apart, mm-hmm. uh, American Protestants apart, evangelicals apart. Um, so like a classic case is baptism, right? Um, I was baptized when I was five weeks old, right? But uh, I also have been to covenant churches that primarily practice believers' baptism. They function with the Baptist kind of polity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, at certain points, not that far back in church history, that that's a terribly divisive issue to the point in the Reformation, the 16th century, where, you know, my pedo-baptistic forebears are, are burning Anabaptists at the stake, right? Like, and, you know, even after some of that violence abates, that, that's still a dividing line. That's a bright red line. You know, one of those is right, and you've got to pick which side you're going to be on. But, um, you know, at least in the last, I think, at least 30 years or so, uh, my understanding was that to be ordained as a covenant pastor, you had to be willing to perform both modes of baptism. You had to expect that if you led a congregation, you might have people who affirm both of those beliefs. You have to honor both of them. And, you know, like, I mean, the the, the theologian in me, and there's not much of a theologian in me, but part of me wants to say, well, can these both actually be true? Is does that Does that fit? And I think what covenant theologians would say is, well, scripture leaves room for both, right? Like you, you can make a case and then you can also appeal to tradition, to theological argumentation. And, you know, can't we honor both? Is that not possible? Um, I mean, the other kind of classic case that, that often has been made during the sexuality debate is on the eve of World War II, the covenant church uh, goes out of its way really to affirm both just war and pacifism as Christian ethical principles. And I mean, they did this partly because there actually was a system of conscientious objection for World War II. And so I don't think there were a lot of pacifists in the covenant at that point, but they wanted to create space for those to, for those folks to say that, you know, we, we affirm this and you can go to your draft board and say that this is a sincerely held religious conviction. 
And even though most of us in the covenant are going to go off and serve, we're going to send chaplains in and we're going to go fight in the military. We, we believe that this is a genuine Christian conclusion that you've arrived at. It's a way of following Jesus Christ. We'll honor it. And I think that's usually been the spirit of the covenant, you know, is, is almost a, almost a enjoy living in this tension, right? Uh, whether it's like you said, eschatology, a lot of covenanters are pre-millennial, but you'll find post-millennial, amillennial and everything else, if there's anything else on the spectrum, right? Um, and then I would say in the last 15 years, I don't know if I can precisely date when this really becomes a difficult problem in the covenant, uh, a debate breaks out over human sexuality. So I think the covenant had actually addressed this to some extent, maybe around the turn of the century. I forget if it was the late 90s or actually earlier. The way the covenant functions is that every summer there's an annual meeting. And every congregation sends a certain number of delegates. And actually, that's what governs the covenant. There's an executive committee with a kind of church bureaucracy of a small size. But if you want to make changes in covenant doctrine, in covenant polity, in covenant anything, it's the annual meeting that has to do it. But normally, the annual meeting doesn't really make big changes to covenant affirmations, to covenant doctrinal points. It, it, it usually will affirm a resolution of some sort, which... Uh, there have been covenant resolutions on uh, environmental protection, on racial justice, on uh, the capital punishment, and no one is bound by them. They're, they're just the statement of the sense of that annual meeting of here's where we are as a denomination, here's how we're wrestling with this issue, here's why we think it's important. And so there was a statement on human sexuality that affirmed uh, um, chastity and signalness and uh, then within the bonds of a male-female marriage. Um, but that's been about 20-some years. I think in many respects, uh, it's a very different society now, and not just because of the Obergefell reading, but I think especially among younger covenanters and younger evangelicals, attitudes have changed significantly. I think many more of them actually know people who are LGBTQ, right? Um, and I, I think that's caused some serious rethinking and, as importantly, rereading of Scripture. And, you know, uh, and I think... A lot of those covenanters then expected, well, the way we'll address this then is the way we've addressed baptism or participation in warfare or eschatology is we've got these sincerely held beliefs that both appeal to scripture, uh, both are motivate, motivated by love of God and love of neighbor, and so we'll find a way to disagree because that's what we've always done. And instead, what happened was it became clear that leadership at varying levels had decided this was not something that covenanters could disagree on. Or at the very least, the covenant clergy could not disagree. And, and so, like the, the mechanics of this get a little bit difficult for me even to explain because I'm not sure I fully understand them. You probably need to talk to a covenant pastor to really get it right. But there's in the covenant what's called a board of ordered ministry mm -hmm. that reviews cabinets for ordination, but also deals with uh, allegations of abuse, of harassment, of infidelity. So, there is a kind of uh, a, a set of ethical guidelines binding pastors that's been around for a while. And at a certain point, um, one of those guidelines became that as a pastor, you could not uh, publicly contradict the denomination's stance on human sexuality, uh, either by something you did or, for example, by presiding at a, at a same-gender, same-sex marriage. Right? And, and so this starts to become an issue in the last, really, seven years because there are certain pastors and certain congregations that become affirming churches. And their pastors do preside at marriages. Uh, and they also go out of the way to include statements of inclusion in their public materials. They don't just welcome LGBT Christians into the congregation, but say that 
all roles are open um, from clergy down to congregational leadership to anything else. So where this kind of, uh, where I think this um, really becomes difficult is that a congregation called First Covenant of Minneapolis becomes an affirming church. Uh, and actually, its current pastor is a lesbian black woman, right? And but before that even happened, the the white pastor had had said, "I I affirm in all respects my LGBTQ brethren. I'm going to marry same sex marriages, uh, and we welcome all into this community." And over a period of time, that got him into trouble with his local conference and then with the board of ordered ministry. And there was also another pastor who had presided at the marriage of his son to another man. That was the other case that was bound up in this. And so I think, I think all sides tried to find some compromise resolution, but at a certain point, they, they reached this impasse, right? The, the pastor and the congregation would not back down from what they felt was their sincere belief as covenanters, as Christians, that this is God's intention, that we affirm all people made in God's image, and we don't put up barriers unnecessarily, and we affirm love, Right. Um, and the denomination said, no, you violated, pastor, your ethical guidelines, and if you will not voluntarily either change your position or voluntarily withdraw from the denomination, there is a procedure to involuntarily dismiss congregations from the covenant, and the Board of Ordered Ministry can take away someone's uh, credentials as clergy, and both of those things happened uh, at the annual meeting in Omaha in 2019. And so first, it still calls itself First Covenant Minneapolis. It's still right downtown next to the Viking Stadium, um, but it's no longer part of the denomination. And that pastor lost his credentials as a covenant pastor. And so there, there's been a little bit more since that, but that, that was really the case. I don't know if it made the covenant famous or especially well-known, but at least within the covenant, I think for many people, that seemed like the, the boiling over moment, 2019. And how did... What do you think has been the fallout from that um, within the leadership, but also within the denomination among clergy and, and members and all of that? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends where you are. There have been congregations that have left the covenant voluntarily. Um, for example, there was one in Texas that was featured by the New York Times about 10 years ago because it was one of these intentionally multi-ethnic churches. It had a Chinese pastor, but a very diverse congregation. They had chosen the covenant um, precisely because it had immigrant heritage and because it had this kind of commitment to live together despite theological difference. And when this decision came through, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're on the way out anyway, but that was the last straw for them and they left. I have no idea how many congregations have left voluntarily because of this. Uh, at this point, I don't think many have been dismissed involuntarily, but at the next annual meeting coming up this summer, two more congregations are facing this step, uh, one in the Twin Cities and one in Seattle. And um, so we can talk more about that if you want. Um, beyond that, what's really hard to gauge is, first of all, kind of the leadership's response. Uh, the president at the time of the Omaha meeting is no longer the president. Uh, the Covenant now has its first woman president, um, Tammy Swanson-Draheim, so this will be her annual meeting. Uh, there's a new seminary dean, there's a new head of the board of Word ministry, um, there's a new regional superintendent here in the Twin Cities, like, but I don't know, and I, I, I can only guess at what's going on there, but there is a change of leadership, and so it's, it'll be interesting to see, um, is this a position they want to stick to, or is there actually room for rethinking and revision? Uh, the other thing is just the number of people who have left quietly. Um, 
or not so quietly, but just individual. And I now probably should take off my scholar hat and put on my just individual Christian hat. This wasn't the only reason my family left the Covenant Church and went to our neighborhood church. We partly just wanted to be at closer church where our kids have friends and my wife is a Lutheran and she had spent 15 years at the Covenant Church. But honestly, like to some extent, um, it was hard for me to watch the Covenant abandon what I took to be one of its most distinctive affirmations, which is that we can actually find ways to live together in tension and that that's part of what it means to have a mission covenant and to be what we used to call ourselves as mission friends is that we don't have to agree on every single issue, but that we can find ways to continue to do mission and ministry and Christian life together. And so that, that was, that was hard for me to see. And I, I stay connected to the covenant church. I still teach in covenant churches. I occasionally preach in them. I have a lot of friends there. I still view it as my home denomination, but um, I'm, a, I'm a somewhat mild version of you know, something that probably has happened to some extent, is people just leaving. Why do you think that this was the the issue that people couldn't agree on? I mean, it doesn't. It seems odd that there were so many other issues they could deal with, but here they couldn't. Yeah, it. It does, right? And so I should acknowledge my bias here. Like I, I, I think there's been a mistake made. Uh, I think this is an overreaction at the very. So, but I would say if I try to step back, um, I can understand kind of both sides of this. You know, on the mm-hmm. one hand, I can understand what I guess I'll call the conservative or the traditionalist position, because if I listen to them within the covenant and kind of similar denominational debates about sexuality. For them, they would probably say, well, this is not simply about sexuality. And they would probably insist, um, I'm able to love people even if I disagree with them. But what this is really about is uh, maybe the authority of Scripture. Not not maybe. That's probably what they would say is the authority of Scripture. This comes down to, well, it seems like Scripture, as interpreted for 2,000 years, has said this. And now you are giving into modern culture and you're abandoning the authority of Scripture in order to affirm something contrary to what the church has taught for 2000 years. I mean, I think I've, I've, I've heard that argument made many times uh, and not just in the covenant. I, I, you can find this in the Lutheran debate over sexuality in 2009. You can find it in the CRC, the Christian reform debate that you know, reached its head last summer um, in the Mennonite church has had this version of the debate. Um, to some extent, you know, I think the conservative side would say, well, this comes down to what is the nature of holiness, right, of righteousness? I mean, this is a moral question for some conservatives. And that gets really hard. And <laughs> are you going to say to, I'm looking right at you, Dennis, like there's something immoral about your relationship with your husband. That I, I can only imagine is a very hard thing for you to hear. But I think that is something that some traditionalists are trying to argue is we are called to a certain kind of holiness that includes sexuality. And in their mind, this violates that understanding of holiness. On the other side, um, I think I, I remember talking to a covenanter like 10 years ago who said for him, this really goes beyond compromise. This has become a justice issue to him. And, and he, he was straight. He's, he's married to a woman. But he said, he couldn't support the covenant any longer because he wanted to stand in solidarity with what, what he perceived as a marginalized minority and he wanted to be an ally. Right. And, and so even like my position of, well, we should embrace the tension and live together. That that's a compromise that he wasn't willing to live with. Uh, or if not the word justice, uh, some covenanters like this would probably say, this is a matter of love. This is the highest commandment after all. And we are using the love of people for each other 
as an excuse to be unloving toward them. And that seems perverse, I think, to to those affirming Christians, right? And so in I mean, it's obviously about sexuality. I don't want to minimize what this means because it really is, it affects people, their sense of self-worth and dignity, their understanding of scripture, their relationships, their families. But it also then, I think for some people, does start to stand in for other kinds of debates about what is the authority for what we believe? What is the nature of holiness? What is the nature of justice? What is the nature of love, right? And those are obviously serious, important debates that we have, right? And and so maybe unfairly then sexuality and especially same-sex individuals and couples kind of get caught in the crossfire of that, right? And their lives become fodder for these bigger debates about truth and justice and love. I don't know. That, that's, that's my take as I try to make sense of it. Why do you think it's so hard in this day and age for us to live in tension? Um, and maybe that's always been the case. I don't know. But it seems very much in this day and age that we want everything to be smooth, um, uncomplicated, and that you know, that we don't want to accept that there are sometimes things that can't easily be resolved and that we have to learn how to live with that. Mm -hmm. It seems like we just have lost that talent or skill. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it takes me back to in 2017, I was teaching a first year kind of general education course. I decided, I forget what I call it. I think it was like Christian unity in a polarized age. And like in my mind, all sorts of different topics came together. Like I, I was thinking about sexuality, and we actually simulated a covenant and <laughs> denominational meeting about this debate. Um, but I was also thinking about the aftermath of the 2016 election. And so we talked about political polarization. But I was also thinking about like Robert Putnam and bowling alone in the sense of isolation, right? And and social atomization. And I don't know if it all held together. I haven't taught that class again. But um I, I do wonder if there are some things that cut across and and so in a sense, like maybe the debate we've been talking about is being shaped by other kinds of forces you know, outside of the church that aren't really just about sexuality or the way that denominations govern themselves. I mean, I, I wonder if it does reflect, um, you know, impatience, I guess, is one way of framing it. Like living intention requires a long time, right? Such <laughs> if those disagreements are ever sorted out and maybe they aren't, it, it does require that you can't come to a quick conclusion. Right. And that can be a difficult thing for a society that that's shaped by instantaneous feedback on social media. Um, I also don't want to like um, sound too nostalgic for like the good old days. We all just took our time with each other and we're very patient. I'm not, I mean, at least in the modern age, I'm not sure patience has ever been really a hallmark of the society. But I, I, I do think like, as we think about the nature of what the church is as a community, like I, I want to take seriously the idea that the covenant church is a covenant right, of people with each other to work with each other for the sake of the mission of God in this world. Well, covenants are long-term things. Covenants are not short-term arrangements that you break as soon as it becomes disadvantageous or a better deal comes up. Like, it, it's it's a pretty serious commitment that you've entered and evokes biblical notions of covenant, which are generational and um, like they're cosmic almost and ancient, right? I don't know if the covenant as a denomination needs to last that long. Sometimes they just outlive it, their usefulness. But I, I, I do think what, what's good about the covenant is this willingness to say, like, from the founding, we will work together, right? And it doesn't necessarily assume agreement as a precondition for partnership. 
it is said, it seems like we're doing this because of love of God that's going to work itself out in love of neighbor by doing the work of God in this world. I mean, the covenant was founded primarily to pool the resources of relatively poor immigrants to do things like send missionaries, build schools and colleges, um, build hospitals has been a kind of typical covenant, uh, distinctive, uh, build old folks homes, build other sorts of um, charitable institutions, right? Things you couldn't do individually or even as one congregation. And so you'd say, yeah, we will, we'll partner together and it, we probably do disagree about baptism or the end times or something like that. And that implies a kind of commitment that's that's going to go on for a time, and it's going to have to weather these moments where we, we start questioning each other and we start wondering, oh, do they really believe the same thing I believe? And that does require a kind of patience to very, you've been very patient to listen to my long-winded way back to that point. Um, I think another one that I think about a lot is trust. Like it, it does require, if you're going to, maintain relationship with each other when you do have like honest disagreement about deep-seated principles that matter greatly right like that can only be sustained for the long time that i'm talking about if there's a degree of trust that's accrued between people or trust in the institution maybe in this case or in your leadership in this case but man that that's not something that seems to be in um great quantity right now in the society either and i you'd have to talk to a sociologist or psychologist to think about how do we do better at rebuilding trust or a phrase like social capital or something but i don't know i, I guess i think about it in an educational setting like I, I think often about what i'm asking students to do when they come in my classroom is where we're we have to trust each other that there's a reason i'm going to ask them hard questions that they maybe have different answers to or they might disagree with my answer to and I've got to trust them to put in effort and to um, I've got to trust that they're giving a good faith response to the questions I'm asking. Like, you know, that, that does tend to work though within this kind of setting. And maybe it's because actually it's a residential setting and I see them several times a week. And that gets harder when you're in a denomination where you don't see each other all that often or just once a summer or it's mediated through technology instead. I don't, I don't know what really is unraveling the fabric, but it does seem like trust is part of it. Now we're really going beyond my expertise as anything. This is just this is just me kind of things I think about when I'm driving to and from Iowa to see my in-laws. I look <laughs> at the bleak winter landscape and I ponder trust and patience, I guess. So one of the things that um it seems to be going around in in and you talked about this in your article is um kind of a, a sign-on letter. Um that is kind of urging that at the annual meeting next year, or well, no, this year. Yeah, this year. Does. I forget it's 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, to um, not take action against uh, these two churches. Um, and I think you said one is in, in St. Paul here mm-hmm. right, in the Twin right. Cities and one is in Seattle. Um, how have you kind of picked up any kind of idea of where people are at when it comes to any decisions and, um, and the people who are citing that, are they people from who have differing opinions on all of this or how, or is it just on one side? Sure. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it's, it's a petition. I don't know how long it's actually been circulating. I mean, this is still six months, five months away from the meeting. So I think they wanted to get out ahead of it. Um, last I checked was seven or 800 names, which you know mm-hmm. is not a lot, but again, it's not a big denomination. Yeah, as I look at that list of names, you know, what strikes me first is a lot of them come from the two affected churches, from Awaken Community in, in uh, West 7th Street in St. Paul, and then Quest Church, which is a really multi-ethnic church that's always had 
uh, people of color and leadership in Seattle. Um, you know, understandably, a lot of people signing it, their their congregants at those at those churches. Um, and it also is striking how many of the people who are signing are either current or retired covenant pastors. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think like as much as this bothers me, I think it bothers our, our ministerium even more so. Because really, that's where it hits, right? It, it's come down to this ethical guideline issue, and it even comes down to stripping of credentials before congregations are affected. And, I, and these are people who have a calling to the church, right? And they they entered into it knowing that the church is flawed and imperfect, and that it disagrees, and yet they still wanted to dedicate their lives to it. And and you know, many of them, they're not even new; they're, they've been doing this for thirty years, and they have a pretty strong commitment to the covenant. And this this is fraying and testing it. So that stands out to me. Um, otherwise, it, it's hard to know. I, I, I shouldn't try to gauge. The one reason I, I gave it some thought, because there have been petitions before, but the reason that I thought maybe it's worth coming back to this is that last year at the annual meeting, um, the pastor of the church in St. Paul was up for revocation of his credentials. Um, so not the congregation, but they, instead the pastor came up before the Board of Ordered Ministry and then the whole ministerium. And if I remember the way our polity works, that uh, there was supposed to be an annual meeting, like all the delegates were supposed to vote to take away his credentials because he had violated these guidelines, right? He had performed same-sex marriages and his church is fully affirming. And the board, the board that governs all this had made a recommendation to do that. But first, it had to go through a meeting of all of the ordained uh, clergies and ministers, the, the ministerial association, the ministerium. And they did not vote in favor of this. And I can't remember exactly what the, the guy, I don't know if it needs to be a two-thirds vote or a supermajority or if it's a straight majority, but however it worked out, uh, they didn't recommend it. And so that was taken off the agenda for the annual meeting. And that matches my sense that covenant clergy are probably, um, you know, if not necessarily affirming, at least closer to what I've described as this uh, live intention sort of position and don't see this as a make or break um, this defines whether you're a covenant or not covenant, whether you're a faithful clergy person or not. Um, so I don't necessarily know that that predicts what the annual meeting will do, because most of the delegates are lay people, right? Not clergy. But that that's that's significant by itself, because that hadn't happened in 2019. And it may suggest a rethink or a backlash, change of heart, whatever it might be. And again, that paired with new leadership. And partly just me being away from the denomination now for four years and maybe being out of touch with what's going on. It did make me wonder, given that there's this new petition out there, is there a renewed movement, maybe not just among the clergy, but among ordinary covenanters to say, well, we don't have to be bound to this decision that was made three, four years ago. We can actually revisit this and maybe go back to what I've been describing as more traditional covenant kind of strategy or posture. Do you think that there is some hope that that can? be kind of reborn that kind of being able to live in some some sense of tension um it's hard to tell i i mean one thing i need to be aware of is you know um the covenant is fairly diverse in lots of sorts of ways and i think one problem sometimes with covenant scholars like me is we tend to define it in terms of what happens at the headquarters in chicago what happens at the seminary at north park what happens among fellow scholars, right? Like we maybe make too much of those kinds of figures within the institution and we pay too little attention to, um, there probably are more evangelicals in the covenant than used to be. 
right? There's been a lot of church planting, and um, often those are people who don't come from the traditional kind of covey position that I've described. They've come from other places, and they may have been drawn by things other than this willingness to live in tension, or as we put it, to grant freedom in Christ to each other. And so, like, there, there's probably significant constituencies of the covenant who listen to what I'm saying and say, well, you know, that's nice on some issues, but we're really now to something like uh, the heart of the gospel, or we're really to that authority of scripture kind of place. And uh, they'd say that's what defines the covenant, is this willingness to take an unpopular position because it's what the Bible teaches, right? And so the covenant is not a monolith any more than evangelicals is a monolith. And uh, it's just, it's hard to predict like who holds sway within that or or what can happen in people's lives? Like it's been three years and maybe people really have had a change of heart or um, there are people whose kids have come out of the closet in three years and they've had to go through that because of personal experience and rethinking. Um, I, it, it's why I, I shouldn't try to predict what's going to happen, but the nature of the covenant polity is that the annual meeting can change its mind. There's no sense in which we are bound by the tradition or by some kind of magisterial authority you know, this is the Protestant and specifically the pietist heritage of the covenant is we're not a confessional church. We're not like the Christian Reformed Church, right? There, there's no document that governs everything. Um, there are just six affirmations the covenanters are supposed to affirm. And actually, to become a member of a congregation, you don't even refer to those. To be a covenant uh, church member, all you have to say is that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that the Old and New Testament are the Word of God. That's it, right? And then you've got theological affirmations, but it's not like there's a long confessional document. It's not like there is a big hierarchical authority. It's not like there's this very, very um, strong adherence to tradition. The mm-hmm. judgments that have made um, are going to hold for a long period of time. Like things do get rethought over time. That's my interpretation at least. So where do you think, the future holds for this issue, um, and when it, and for the denomination as a whole, when it comes to this, um, yeah, because it sounds like you, you talked about church plants and um, on the evangelical side, but I've kind of noticed that there are also church plants that are on the affirming side mm-hmm. as well. So it's it's kind of like you know again these kind of two forces and it's either are they going to just keep battling or just kind of hand hold intention yeah it's uh it's hazardous for historians to predict the future in in all sorts of respects i guess like the kinds of trends that we can notice or i mean what you just described like there is no single way of people rethinking what does it mean to do church in the 21st century and what is that community going to be look like going to look like um you know, certainly it's it's worth noting there is a very clearly observable change in belief or opinion about sexuality and the nature of marriage and family among younger evangelicals. And this is pretty well documented by lots of surveys and studies suggesting that, you know, if, if we just kind of leave things be over time, if those people are still evangelical or if they're still in something like the Covenant Church, they view this very differently than their parents or their grandparents. Right. And, you know, their minds can change as well. But, uh, you know, if things continue in this way, like it is easy to imagine in 50 years, we'll wonder what all the fuss was about. I mean, the same way that when I talked about like these fierce debates about baptism, I'm sure some people would wonder what was the fuss all about with that. Um, that that's one possibility. <clears throat> um, the other might be like we're just going through a realignment or a restructuring of American religion. 
right? And it's hard to know what the fissures are there. It might not, as I probably said the last time I was on, it might not be mainline versus evangelical. That might not be a useful kind of demarcation anymore. Um, it, it might not even be affirming, not affirming anymore. Like, I think one thing that's happening is almost all of these churches are shrinking and they're all facing financial challenges. And this past month, they were all going to their members with tight budgets asking for more donation. And so given that, it, it's hard to imagine that the kind of structures that currently exist and even the kind of institutions that currently exist, if, how can they possibly be unchanged? Um, or if you layer on politics or something with this, or layer on technological change, it just feels like we're in this moment of flux. And what probably is going to happen is you'll get lots of new ways of doing church, new ways of thinking about what it means to be faithful to to the gospel and to Jesus Christ, new ways of thinking about how do we do mission in this world? Uh, what is the nature of a Christian community? And so that makes me even more leery of predicting where we're headed, except to say, like, it does feel like we're entering a time of, you know, um, possibilities and maybe new ways of approaching things that feel kind of um, locked in conflict or settled or stratified. You know, I, I guess I'd be a little hesitant to say, well, this is probably, we're locked in this battle and it's going to stay there. Like, I just feel like too much is changing in Christianity, specifically a religion more generally in American society, most generally to, to imagine that we're, we're going to see new ways of approaching this. I'm confident within my lifetime and certainly within my kid's lifetime. I don't know what those ways will be, but I, I think I can, I, I would not be surprised to see um, innovation and change in, in the next 50 years to hundred years. Um, kind of getting close to wrapping up, but one of the things that I was kind of curious about is um, kind of what is the approach or how would you define the approach of pietism when it comes to sexuality? Um, now, people would tend to think when, when they think piet, pietism, when we talked about this when you were last on, they have a, a certain viewpoint of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in reality, how would a pietist kind of come to some conclusion um, on this issue? Yeah, well, maybe I can try to answer in a way that refreshes people's memory or, or tells people like what I mean when I say pietism. So maybe the first thing to say is I think a pietist would say Christianity is not just belief, right? It's 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 behavior, it's experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that sense, that's how we should start if we're going to think about uh, any debate about sexuality, that it's not just an idea of something, and it's not just a theological or an ethical argument. It's about people and how they live and how they relate to each other and uh, theology of the body and of sex and of family and of marriage. And that's the most important thing. And so I'd want to keep that above all these other things. And even like within this, like I, I do feel awkward whenever I say the issue of sexuality. I'd rather, I want to remind myself this is about humans, right? Who, who do have sexuality and do have a relationship with each other. I'd want to start there. Um, and within that, then I think pietists will disagree, right? They, they will have different notions of what a good use of a good sexual use of the body is, of what a marriage should look like, of what a family should look like, of what how love is expressed by Christians. Right. So I, I won't try to presume to say, here's what the pietist view on those things would be. But I do think it has to start with how humans live and specifically how followers of Jesus Christ live, relate to each other. Um, I don't know if that's helpful. The larger thing probably to say is pietism would also then say, because Christianity is not just belief, it's not primarily belief. Um, pietists have also then 
tended to think, well, what then is the purpose of scripture? I, I keep saying there's this connection, I think, especially, well, really on both sides, I think of the sexuality debate of, well, what is, what is the Bible tell us about this? This is authoritative in some way, if, if you're Protestant, certainly. Um, I think pietists would like to go back to the notion that the, the Bible is not meant to be a rule book. It's not meant to be a source of information. It's primarily meant to be a means of relationship with God. Right. And I probably said the last time I was on, there's this old covenant phrase that the, the Bible is this altar um, at which we meet the living God. Right. And so it's a means of relationship. And um, I think it's a relationship. And when God meets you, that's not necessarily a comfortable kind of thing. It's often an unsettling kind of thing in which you see yourself differently and you're driven to repentance. Right. And so um, what that means for sexuality, we'd have to work out. But I do think pietists would be leery of simply invoking, well, okay, here are these seven verses, right? And that closes the door. I think even if you agree that those verses, right, the clobber verses, um, are, they have some kind of authority over what we think about sexuality, you would still need to think then about what, what is God trying to say to us now, right, in this context? And how do we read the Bible well? I mean, one of the things I loved about the covenants and still love about the covenant is, is I think they have a really robust way of reading scripture. You can find what's called a resource paper written about 15 years ago by covenant scholars and pastors. And they talked about that living altar notion, but they also talked about we need to read this carefully. We need to use the best tools of scholarship. We need to read the Bible in light of uh, new scientific understanding. And most importantly, we need to read it communally. We don't just read it individually. We have to read it with each other, which implies probably debating with each other. You know, and so maybe the, the pietist thing here to say is like, you can't just sort of decide, here's what I believe about this and kind of hold to it as it's settled. You probably need to spend some time studying the Bible with people you disagree with and see how God speaks to all of you about that would probably be the healthiest move forward. Um, but I think I'd also say we're supposed to read the Bible humbly, right, with um, the sense of it has authority, your interpretation of it does not have authority. And maybe even the church's interpretation does not have authority, and maybe even hundreds and thousands of years of tradition don't have authority. I mean, that's maybe the most Protestant thing pietists will do is to say that if it is this living altar where we meet a living God, we might be surprised by it, right? We, we might hear things we have not heard before, and we've got to be open to that possibility. So, you know, in broad strokes, that's what I'd say pietism might have to say to this issue that is so vexing for so many people in different sorts of ways, in different ecclesial and denominational settings. And hopefully that's helpful beyond just this small denomination called the Covenant Church. It's funny, one of the, um, I'm getting ready for for Sunday and preaching, and um, one of the passages is from Acts 10. Um, and that's the one, of course, with Peter um, having the vision of the eating the food that was considered unlawful for him to eat, to eat. And at the same time, he's also being called to meet with Cornelius, the the Roman, the Gentile, mm-hmm. and um, that you know he thought he knew what was the authority, mm-hmm. um, and that authority, you know, I think we forget that in some way God has the authority, and that that can change, or that's we don't know all of it, and um, it's always kind of a dynamic in in some ways, and. Sometimes as humans, we tend to think that it's static and there forever and ever. And um, 
it isn't. Yeah, no, I, I think that's why, and not not to not to imply what that necessarily means. I mean, that that could change all sorts. I mean, that might change mm-hmm. my position. Like, I think about this in terms of warfare, probably more than anything, because I feel like I'm someone who teaches classes. Like right now, I have a class on World War II. Just taught a class in the Cold War, and I tend to come down on the just war side of things. But mm-hmm. every time I do it, I, I find myself reading something in Scripture about the nature of human life nature of God's judgment. I'm like, wait, am I actually being faithful here? Like, do I need to be more open to these conscientious objectors I'm teaching about here, to these pacifists? Because that's pretty inconvenient. <laughs> and am I just resisting that because it's inconvenient? Or, um, yeah, so I, it's, I, I think that's absolutely true. I don't think it's just true about sexuality. I think it's true about everything we believe because humans do have this tendency um, I think religion is a good thing, but we sometimes try to sacralize human sorts of things and preserve institutions and traditions as if they are holy, as mm-hmm. they are authoritative and they're not. God is holy and God is authoritative and it, we need to maybe be listening as much as we're speaking about such debates. Well, um, before I go, I wanted to, if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you, I know that you have a sub stack. I do. Everyone um, has a sub stack now, right? Yeah. It seems like everyone <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, would you be willing to kind of share share that and whatever else you uh, people want to know? Yeah, sure. So I, I've been blogging really for, this is, well, I guess, 12th year or something since 2011. And uh, in the past year, like a lot of folks who write uh, for the public, I decided to take my hand, to try my hand at something called Substack which is mostly an email-based newsletter. And so my usual practice is I try to write two issues or posts of the newsletter each week, um, and that tends to be somewhat eclectic, um, reflecting my varied interests, uh, like I'm writing one for next week about World War II because that's what I'm teaching. Uh, I wrote something about the theology of snow days this week because we have a snow day. (laughs) Um, I'll write about education a lot because I think about higher ed a lot. Uh, and then on Saturdays, I share uh, just a list of other things I've been reading. And then on Sunday, at least the last few months, I've been trying to write just a short devotional about the lectionary. So I was reading Acts 10 myself and kind of think about what I have to say this Sunday, too. So maybe I'll go back to that and think about Peter and Cornelius a little bit more. So, yeah, that 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 comes out about four times a week. Uh, there's there's a paid subscriber option if you want to get all of them, but you don't have to. You can get three of them a week if you're a free subscriber. And so that's at chrisgarrets.substack.com. All right. Great. Well, Chris, it was great to have you back on. Um, hopefully, maybe we can talk again soon. Love that. And probably talk about some other issue and, and historical issues. So um, I know I definitely would, I, at one point, when I talked about the um, the book on Charles Lindbergh. Um, <laughs> yes, that's that one just, a whole other well, issue. He's just an <laughs> interesting character. That's a kind word for it. For many, many, many reasons. That's so. great. Yeah. So. No, well, thank you. Thank you for what you do, Dennis, as, um, as a minister, but also as a podcaster and a Substack writer yourself. All right. Take care. Okay. We'll see you around. that you enjoyed the episode it was great to have chris back on the podcast and i'm hoping to have him back uh really soon
So if you have been following me on Substack, and just kind of a, a quick reminder, that's where I moved after uh, my previous host, Sounder, shut down. Um, you will notice that I'm, I'm sharing a lot more written articles. Um, some of those are, are articles that I've written are, are brand new. Um, and some are things that I had posted recently on other sites. Um, and I'm hoping to kind of really write more, um, sharing more articles, um, and kind of doing some things up on, on there, uh, just so that I'm doing more than just, uh, podcasts. Um, I'd like to, at some point, offer subscriptions and premium content. Um, but to do that, I'd like to build up the subscriber base. So, I mean, obviously, I'm not simply putting out the written articles just to get more, um, build up the subscriber base. I do actually want people to to read my articles and share them. But I'd also like um, for people to subscribe. Um, so... If you can, and if you are listening to this, um, and maybe you actually haven't even been on the, on, uh, the Trisha Main, uh, Substack, uh, that you consider doing that, uh, and subscribe. Uh, you can do that by going to church and main, all one word, dot substack dot com. And then, um, when you subscribe, basically it makes it a whole lot easier. You could, you get, the latest article and podcast episode in the inbox. So it's pretty easy. Um, you can also check out, there is uh, another website I have for the podcast, churchofmaine.org. Um, and you can also subscribe there as well. Though um, You can subscribe actually at both. Um, you don't have to just pick one. Um, also, um, I would hope that you consider following us, following Church in Maine on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, the links are going to be in the show notes. So that is it for this episode of Church in Maine. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Again, as I always like to say, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, share this with others. Share this episode with others who might uh, want to hear this. So take care, everyone. Godspeed, and I will see you really soon. <music>